Well, do take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1, and to those verses we read together from verse 29 of the first chapter. Titles are important in certain walks of life. And uh, back in the UK, where I grew up, there was one particular lady who had quite a number of them. I don't have time this evening to recite all of them, but here here is the official, this is the beginning of the official list of her titles. We know her affectionately as Liz, but this is the official list. Her Majesty Elizabeth II, by the grace of God of Great Britain, Ireland, and the British dominions beyond the seas, Queen, Defender of the Faith, Duchess of Edinburgh, Countess of Marianeth, Baroness Greenwich, Duke of Lancaster, Lord of Man, Duke of Normandy, Sovereign of the Most Noble Order of the Garter, Sovereign of the Most Honorable Order of the Bath, Sovereign of the Most Ancient and Most Noble Order of the Thistle, Sovereign of the Most Illustrious Order of St. Patrick, Sovereign of the Most Distinguished Order of St. Michael and St. George, Sovereign of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, Sovereign of the Distinguished Service, so it goes on and on and on, Sovereign of India, they don't even want her, Sovereign of the Order of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem, so it goes on. Uh, Some of us who don't have all these titles are envious, of course. And, uh, and therefore, we just affectionately, as I say, we call her Liz. But giving titles to monarchs is as ancient as time itself. And that's why it's important for us, uh, and one of the reasons it's important is that communicating, as the Bible is doing, into ancient societies, it was very important in, that you be able to uh, accurately describe the king, whether it's the king of Israel or the king of Timbuktu, I don't think they, they discovered Timbuktu then, but uh, of Egypt or whatever, the Pharaoh and all the titles that Pharaoh was given. But it was also important that you were able to give the correct titles to God, the God you worshipped. Now when we come to look at these early verses of John, we discover that John is concerned, that is John the writer, as well as John the Baptist, the character that emerges in the opening part of this gospel, is concerned to identify the God about whom he is writing. We've already seen some honorable titles given to him. Uh, The one who has come into the world is the Word, and the Word was God. In other words, this figure is already described as the Word, the communication. He's described as God himself. He's described as the Word made flesh. We're told that he is full of grace and truth. His name is Yeshua Jesus. His title is Messiah Christ. And he is the only God, verse 18, the only God who is at the Father's side. A whole variety of titles that have been given, accumulated and applied to Jesus in this opening prologue to John's gospel itself. And we've been introduced to this character that we know as John the Baptist, actually the only John that's mentioned in John the Apostle's book. He doesn't mention himself, but is concerned to to stand in the background and for our attention to be on the main characters in the drama, John the Baptist being the first main character. 
And John, that is John the Baptist, from now on that, that will be the John I'm referring to, John's role in the big story of the Bible is to be the last prophet before the Messiah, who is the final prophet. So he is the, the penultimate prophet. He is the last witness by Israel to its Messiah. He has an important role to play. He has already made that clear. We saw that last time. His testimony, the witness that he will bear uh, to the authorities in Jerusalem, which he does in verse 19, and to the masses of people, is to identify who the Messiah of the Jews is. Now, up until this point, and we saw this last week, he has done this in the negative. So he's crossed off the list all the ideas that people had concerning he himself, John. And he's made it very clear, we saw this last time, that he is not, he is not the Messiah. He is not the Christ. He is not the coming king. Secondly, he is not the Elijah in the sense of Elijah raised from the dead or come back from the dead. Elijah didn't die, actually. He went straight to heaven. This is not Elijah revisiting the planet. Nor is he the prophet that Moses talked about. He is a prophet, but he's not the prophet about which Moses spoke, through whom God would speak. So he's been negative so far, and all he's told us to this point is this that this one who is coming after him, he is not worthy to be the slave of the one who unties his shoes. He is not even worthy to do that. He is lower than the slave that unties the shoes of the sovereign. He's in the rung lower than the slave. That's all we know so far. Now we come to this section today, and John takes us deeper in. And now, having confronted Jesus, that's the first time Jesus walks onto the scene, really, in this book, is here in verse 29. The next day, he sees Jesus coming towards him. And that triggers his positive testimony to Jesus. As the sacrificial lamb, the superior one, the Spirit-bringer, and the Divine Son. Let's look at those together. First of all, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, it's striking. What's striking is that these words are his reaction to coming face to face with Jesus, who now appears on the scene for the first time. He, he uses in his introduction this solemn formula that is used in the Hebrew Scriptures to underline some significant revelation of God. Behold! What he has just done for the observer, the, the keen observer of the text, is that he has just quoted in the previous section from Isaiah chapter 40. He's called himself the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. 
But what he has not quoted from Isaiah 40 is what the voice actually says. In Isaiah 40, the voice says, Behold your God. Behold your God. Now here is John the Baptist. He is the voice, the voice crying in the wilderness. And we've had ourselves prepared for what he has to say. He says he's come to prepare the way of the Lord. That is the way of Yahweh, the way of the God of Israel. And he comes out with this. When he comes face to face with Jesus, he comes out with these words. Behold, see, look, wow, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, his focus is not now on who Jesus is so much as on what Jesus is coming into the world to do. The formula comes out of the blue. There's no immediate explanation. It's in keeping with a revelation given to John. It's probably going over the heads of the people as they're listening in at this point. They probably didn't get the gr or grasp what it is he's saying to them. They merely hear the words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now where does he get this from? Did he get this as a direct revelation from God? Well, he was a prophet and he may very well have done so. But I think there are three biblical sources for John's announcement of the Lamb of God. The first and the most obvious, of course, is the very first story in the Bible that involves a lamb doing anything for someone else. And that's the story of Abraham and Isaac. You remember, they go up the hill. Abraham takes his son Isaac and he goes out to make a sacrifice and Isaac and the people who are with them think that it's just going to be the normal routine sacrifice. They'll take a lamb with them. They'll kill the lamb. They'll offer it on the altar. They'll burn it as a burnt offering to God, and that'll be it over with. So they go out. And I don't know whether Isaac's a bit slow or not, but they're going out for three days. They make their way out there into the desert. They get to the hill, and Abraham says to his men, you stay here, and the, the lad and I will, will go yonder and... Uh, and when we come back to you, you'll, you'll know. And off they go out into the hillside. And Abraham and Isaac. And somewhere up the hillside, when they're on their own, Isaac says to his dad, he says, Dad, um, we have the wood uh, for the sacrifice. Uh, is there something we're missing here? Where's the lamb? And Abraham says to his son Isaac, he says, God will provide the lamb, my son. And you know the story. They get there, the wood is put out, Isaac helps his father put the wood out, ready for the sacrifice. And Abraham binds up Isaac, lays him on the altar, and is about to kill him with his knife when in the thicket nearby, God provides the lamb. And the lamb dies in Isaac's place. And that is the origin of this whole idea. In Scripture, the lamb takes the place of Isaac. And do you know when it takes place? On Mount Moriah. 
And Mount Moriah is where Jerusalem will ultimately be built. And on Mount Moriah is where Jesus will ultimately be crucified. I think that's the first source. The Lord will provide a lamb, my son. The second source of the language, I think, that that John uses here is from the servant songs of Isaiah where Isaiah describes the one who was pierced for our transgressions and wounded for our iniquities. The one who comes as a lamb to the slaughter. Silent. It gives us that expression, the silence of the lambs. It became a famous book, you remember, and movie. And Jesus connected his ministry with that passage in Isaiah On many occasions, one occasion, for example, he puts it like this, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word for there is uh, the uh, substitutionary word in Greek, in place of, instead of, as a substitute for the many. Jesus understood that that is precisely why he'd come into the world. He says in Mark 14, this is my blood of a covenant, the covenant which is poured out for many. He had come to be the Lamb of God, going like a lamb to the slaughter, who would carry the sins of his people, who would be pierced for their transgressions, bruised for their iniquities, carry their sin on his shoulders, and die for the sins of his own. The third place, of course, and this I think is the primary background, has to do with a sacrificial Passover lamb. I think the two things, the idea of a sacrificial lamb and the Passover lamb, are captured here. In, in Revelation, John, John the writer this time writes the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6, we're introduced to the lamb having just been slaughtered, and it's the Passover lamb, whose blood delivers God's people from coming plagues in in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 3. This fits the context. John has just spoken of a new exodus that's coming, a new redemption in verse 23 that is arriving on the heels of this Messiah who is coming. And he says, in light of this new exodus and this new redemption, there is also going to be the death of a Passover lamb. You remember on the night that judgment fell on Egypt, it was going to fall on every home in Egypt, Jew and Gentile, Israelite and non-Israelite. The judgment was going to fall on every home. Why is that? It's because the wage of sin is death, and it's death for everybody, Israelite or non-Israelite. Egyptian or non-Egyptian. Every household in Egypt. And the word went out to every household in Egypt, whether they were Israelite or Egyptian, that if you kill the Passover lamb and dab its blood on the doorposts of the house and on the lintel, if you do this, when the angel of judgment comes, he will pass over your home. And we know that it wasn't just Israelites that obeyed that word. Egyptians obeyed that word, and in the Exodus, Egyptians went with the Israelites, part of that great number that went to the Red Sea and crossed over the Red Sea. 
Passover lamb died in place of the people. The judgment fell on the lamb rather than on the boy, the firstborn, who should have died. So when John says, pointing to Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God, he's saying, remember, when Isaac was going to die, the Lamb died in his place. Remember that when the judgment was going to fall on the firstborn in every home in Egypt, the Lamb died and the firstborn lived. And remember that when Isaiah said, when the suffering servant comes, he will be wounded for your transgressions, he will bear your guilt, and he will be punished for your transgressions. Remember, it was as a lamb going to the slaughter. And when he looks in Jesus' face, for the first time, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, there's a great significance in this. I want you to notice the significance of what is going on here. What has just happened in the scenario of John chapter 1? If you look back to verse 19, <coughs> you'll find that the Jews in, in Jerusalem, that is the authorities, sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who he was and what he had come to do. Now, what's significant about that is this, that these priests and Levites were the people who were responsible for the sacrificial system. They were the ones in Jerusalem who took the animals that were brought to them and killed them and offered them on behalf of the people. They were responsible for checking out the lambs to make sure they were without blemish and spot and, and suitable for sacrifice. These priests and Levites, every day, that was their job, every day, every day of every year, every decade, every century. They'd been doing it for centuries, every day, taking animals, slaughtering them, offering them as sacrifices to God. It was rubbed into their minds and into the mind of Israel that the soul that sins shall die unless an innocent substitute dies instead. The whole thing was being underlined in that sacrificial system. Death is the result of sin. The wage of sin is death. Somebody has to die. Either you die or the substitute dies. And they did it over and over and over again. And it's in that background, you see, that John points to the Lamb of God. In this striking way, he is underlining God's provision of a once-for-all, end-of-the-ages, final end-times Lamb who takes away sin once and for all. Jesus is not only the final temple where we meet God and where God is present. He is the final sacrifice. And John points to him, and it's in stark contrast to the work of these priests and Levites who have just come the day before to see him. Because not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, 
bears all my sin away, a sacrifice of nobler name and greater worth than they. Jesus walks towards him, and without any input from others, at the apex of his own mission, John marks a division between the old and the new, between what is past and what is to come, between what lies in yesterday, the ministry of the temple. You see the way in which this is structured? I want you to notice this. On the first day, it's the representatives of the temple and the sacrificial system who come to him. On the second, uh, on the third day, John directs his disciples to follow Jesus. But on this middle day, John is face to face with Jesus himself. And that middle day changes everything. The temple with its continual daily offerings is coming to an end. A ministry performed by priests and Levites limited to the sanctuary of Israel, is coming to an end. The ceremonial law given through Moses is coming to an end. It's about to be fulfilled. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Why was he coming as the lamb of God? Well, he was coming as the lamb of God for the sins of his people. Your believer came to bear your sins. Bearing sin and scoffing root in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. This is at the very heart of the Christian message. He died for me. He suffered in my place. He takes the judgment for me. The judgment is past. Do you understand? The judgment is past. God cannot twice demand once from his hand and then again from mine. But secondly, John says Jesus is the superior one. This is the one, this is he, of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I did not myself know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, we saw him last time contrasting himself with the one who came after him, saying that he was mightier than he, and that John was unworthy to untie his sandals. Now John contrasts his ministry, water baptism, and Jesus' ministry, spirit baptism. He talks about Jesus being the one who comes after me, in verse 30. He comes after me, that is, in the succession of the prophets. He comes after me. But it may also mean he comes after me. I, I think this morning, if you were here, you'll remember we were talking about the latter days. And I said that in Hebrew, the Hebrew mind, they face the present and everything to come is behind them. They can't see what's coming behind them, as it were. And so anything after me is in the latter days. And perhaps that's what John means here. That, that the latter days, coming one, the figure that Daniel saw in his Son of Man vision, when he says, I saw night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days, was presented before him, and was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. John says, the one coming after me was before me. He was pre-existent. 
and he ranks before me. He is preeminent. He is superior to everything that has come before. This heavenly figure, who is paradoxically both the son of Adam, the son of man, and a divine figure who comes in the clouds of heaven, with all the pomp and circumstance of God himself. Jesus is the superior one. Thirdly, Jesus is the spirit bringer. John bore witness, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. And I myself didn't know him. He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now John is giving us his eyewitness, you see. It underlines it for us there, verse 32. John bore witness. This is his testimony. It's a legal testimony that he's giving for our sakes. John was there. He was there at the Jordan. He'd been there, done that, had the T-shirt. I was there when Messiah turned up. He had that he wore that. He was there. He was an eyewitness. And what did John see? Well, first of all, John saw the Spirit descend on Jesus. And there's a deliberate echo in the language that's used here of their great forefather of Israel, who was called Jacob, and who was renamed Israel. And whenever you read the story of Jacob, you're reading the story of Israel. And one night, Israel, Jacob, was asleep. And he was given the vision of a ladder that reached from heaven down to where he was sleeping on earth. And angels of God ascending and descending up and down, up and down, this great ladder from the throne of God down to where Israel lay asleep. And that ladder represented... Israel's way to God above, the communication initiated by God, reaching down to Israel, to Jacob, representing his people. And Israel is often described in the Bible as a dove. And that fact alone, used beside this word to descend, links these two stories. And it represents the gift of the Spirit through the Messiah, by descending on Jesus, appointing him to be the one who would be the great witness to Israel. The deliberate way in which the, the, the Spirit descends upon Jesus from heaven like a dove also reminds us of the opening chapters of Genesis. This has been a theme throughout this whole prologue. The emphasis on Genesis and the quotations from Genesis and this is another one where the Spirit of God, like a great bird, hovered over the waters. You remember? And it was the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, that brought form out of disorder and order out of chaos. And here is a new creation. Here is a new creation. And the Spirit of God is active in this new creation. But it's even more than that. When he sees the Spirit descend, something else has happened. Because for 400 years, the Spirit has not been active in the prophetic ministry in Israel. For 400 years, since Malachi to this moment, there has been no prophetic word to Israel. 
And as John baptizes Jesus, the era of the quenched spirit is over. The prophetic spirit has been given once again. He saw the spirit descend upon Jesus, indicating a new order, a new creation, a symbol that God, who had judged the people, as he did remember in sending a flood there in Genesis, and then at the end of that, he brought a foretaste of dry land and new creation and new life by sending a dove. You remember with a branch in its beak? A symbol of the judgment of past. God has come again. He saw the Spirit descend. He saw the Spirit remain on Jesus. Now the Spirit has come to stay. He's descended, but He's descended to stay. From this moment on, the Holy Spirit will only ever be associated with the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is being placarded before our eyes that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. And remaining, the remaining of the Spirit on Jesus is a con in contrast to the glory that once shone from the face of Moses. You remember that glory was fading, but the Spirit is coming on Jesus and is there to stay. To stay. Do you know one of the features for those of us who are Christians is that the Holy Spirit who is there to stay with Jesus has come to stay with us. He's come to make His home with us. He's come to remain with us this same apostle who writes this gospel writes in one of his letters, you, plural, you as the people of God, believers, you have an anointing. You have been Christed, anointed from the Holy Spirit. Well, the Spirit descends on Jesus. The Spirit remains on Jesus and the Spirit flows from Jesus because he baptizes he baptizes. He, he is generous with the Spirit. He brings the Spirit, but He dispenses the Spirit. In John's Gospel, there are going to be three main references to the Holy Spirit here, where the Spirit descends to the world on account of Jesus. Chapter 14, which emphasizes the continuity between Jesus' revelation and that of the Spirit through the apostles. And in chapter 20, when Jesus sends the Spirit to His people. Jesus pours out His Spirit. That was the, the great thing about the latter days. And not just anybody can dispense the Holy Spirit to people. Biblical prophets couldn't do that. They often talked about it. They often talked about outpoured water and the outpouring of the Spirit. They talked about the work of the Holy Spirit as a purifying work, just like washing yourself is purifying as you wash your hands. The Spirit would come and He would wash us bath us all over. But John, you notice, is juxtaposing his own ministry and the ministry of Jesus. He's saying, I've come to baptize with water, but Jesus, he comes to baptize with spirit. My ministry is only, not only inferior, but it is temporary and it's provisional. He is coming and He is superior, permanent, and it will last. 
But he's bringing these two eyes together, these ideas together. And he's saying, think about what my, my ministry of baptism was all about. It was all about purifying and cleansing Israel. Now understand that Jesus' ministry is all about purifying and cleansing Israel. And he's going to do it in two ways. By his death on the cross, he's going to provide the forgiveness of sins. And by the gift of his spirit, he's going to provide the energy that you need, the dynamism you need to keep the law of God. And that is precisely, of course, what in the day of Pentecost was offered to people. Repent and receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. But no mere mortal could pour out the Spirit. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 44. Now hear, O Jacob, my servant. You see the link with Jacob? O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the woman, will help you. I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Jesus has come to pour out the Spirit into the lives of men and women, boys and girls who believe in Him. He is the Spirit bringer. And lastly, Jesus is the supreme Son. Here's John's testimony. I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. No doubt, John is echoing the language of the voice that he heard. This is my beloved Son, with him I am well pleased. As he baptized Jesus. We've already been told in the prologue, no one has ever seen God. But when John saw the face of Jesus, when he witnessed the Spirit of God come upon him, when he heard the word of the Father, he was able to testify to what he had seen. This is the Son of God. Now get this for a moment. What particular kind of son does John have in mind? Well, I think in the context, he's thinking back, first of all, to that story about Abraham and Isaac. And you know the language that is used when God comes to Abraham and tells him to do this terrible deed. You remember the language. God tested Abraham. This is Genesis 22. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And God said, Listen, take your son, your only son, Isaac, because he had another son called Ishmael, Isaac, whom you love, Why does God torture him? By underlining the relationship between Abraham and his dearly loved son, who for Abraham, because he was the only son of 
His relationship with his wife, Sarah, was so precious to him. Your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. This is the background to the use of an expression you find in John's Gospel, which is sometimes translated only son or only begotten son or beloved son, but it comes straight out of this story with Abraham that this is the son of the father's love. The son of the father's love. And when John says, when John says about Jesus, this, I have seen him and have borne witness that this is the son of God. He'd heard the father's voice say, this is my beloved son. And somehow John the Baptist was enabled to see that the God who spared Abraham's son would not spare his son, his only son, Jesus, whom he loved. Paul picks this up. In Romans 8, God did not spare His only Son, but delivered Him up for us all. Behold, the Lamb of God, before He was ever Mary's little Lamb, He was God's Lamb. Before he ever filled a mother's eyes with joy at his birth, he had been the object of the eternal affection of his father, always in face-to-face -face communion with his father. And no father loved a son or son a father as that love at the very heart of the Godhead. And John says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Do you see, for him to take away your sin, he had to be all of these other things. He had to be the Father's beloved. He had to be God in human flesh. He had to be the one who had created all things. He had to be the one who was always in face-to-face -face fellowship with God. He had to be God if he was going to pay the price of infinite rebellion and face infinite judgment, he had to be. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. John says, Behold, see, amazingly, Behold your God. Behold the Lamb of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray tonight that you would help us to lay hold on the Lord Jesus, set out for us in the gospel as the only way of salvation, the only one who has taken on the sins of his people on himself with a view to saving them and getting them eternal life. Thank you, Lord, this evening that by trusting in him, we have the assurance of your word.
that we are pardoned, healed, restored, and forgiven. We pray that you would please write that word on our hearts to your praise and glory. And if there's someone here tonight, Lord, who is looking for you, we pray that they would find you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.